Many of the people interviewed in this podcast have to think back decades when they talk about the before the cheering started years. Not so the up-and-coming star, Zora Howard. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. The first jobs, obstacles overcome, the doubt, plan B's, and the passion to push forward. Zora Howard's star is certainly on the rise. She's a playwright. Her debut play, Stu, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. She's an actor and screenwriter whose 2019 film, Premature, was featured at Sundance. She's a spoken word artist. I first got to know her work thanks to her play, Hang Time, staged in New York in early 2023. It's a show that actually starts before it starts, and that's how we started our conversation. At the beginning of Hang Time, as it's currently constituted, the audience walks in and sees the bodies of three black men hanging. And obviously that's a very compelling way to start a piece of theater. How did that idea come, come about? Well, you know, the how we ended up, how we landed on that particular way of starting the show happened in the design process and the production process. It is not what I'd written in the script. In the script itself, the audience walks into black um, and they're seated and the dialogue begins and a little ways into the play is, is the point when the image is revealed. But as it goes with making live theater, you know, sometimes what you see in your mind, what you have in your head, technically uh, does not work. Or when you have other collaborators and artists in the room all thinking around the same vision, other ideas rise to the surface or other possibilities rise to the surface. So to be honest, it was um, that particular kind of uh, introduction to the piece was something that I found together with my team in process. Mm -hmm. But the concept of the play had always been that that is the image at the center of of hang time is three black men underneath an old wide tree. And that, that has always been, um, we were always going to be grappling with that image in one way or another in the piece. Grappling is a perfect way to put it. Uh, that notion of, okay, this is my baby, so to speak, but in, in getting it from, from starting grounds to on stage, that's going to be a collaborative process at this point in your career. Is that something that you had to kind of come to understand, or did you understand that immediately that, uh, yeah, I'm going to write it, but others were going to, are going to chime in and I need to be open to hearing that. You know, I think I grew up in the theater and from a very young age, my, my parents dropped both my brother and I off at an art school here in Harlem kind of just, you know, said, explore, see what happens. And I gravitated to the theater kind of immediately. So I grew up, um, around theater makers, professional theater makers. And so I, I, I do think, and I loved it, you know, um, and I think one of the first things that you, you come to understand about making theater is that every single phase of it is collaborative. Um, and even the writing of theater 
yes, it's solid. Maybe your process is a solitary one and that you are just you and the page when you're actually getting the words down. But it's a, it's a collaborative thought process because I know that there's no way that I can make this thing without many other people. So I'm thinking about my collaborators from the point of conception. Um, and the most exciting part for me, I think why it's theater. I mean, there are other forms that I write in as well, but I think why theater is the place that I always want to come back to is for that very reason, because of what gets to happen, how a work expands and opens up once you get to the point where you can invite others into the room. My, my process is so informed by actors. When I, yes, okay, I have a sense of who these characters are and I have a sense of how the story is supposed to go, but I don't actually know that really, I can't really understand that fully or as fully as you ever will with, with one piece of work until I can hear it out loud and I can hear the voices and I can feel the energy and the vibrations of these actors and what they bring and how they inform the dialogue and the action. So um, for me, that's the most exciting part because I mean, what a privilege, you know, as the writer to have a vision of something. And then you have all these people who show up and say, yes, I'm also intrigued by that vision, or I'm also, you know, uh, thrilled by the possibility of what we can do. So let me, let me put my mind and my brilliance and my talent to it too. It's very, you know, it's a very humbling thing. Everybody rallying around something that just started as an idea in your head. Where was that first uh, theater uh, class or drama school and how old were you? That was the Harlem School of the Arts. I, we, I started classes there when I was three years old um, because it's a, it's an after school program and it's also a summer program. Um, it's down the block from my house and yeah, we, that's what we did for many, many, many summers. And at first I was doing all of the, I tried everything. I tried the violin and I tried singing chorus and I tried ballet and tap and visual arts, but it was the theater classes that that was the, you know, and at a certain point it just stopped being everything else and only, only was theater. So what do you think it was about uh, that for your folks, for your family, that, hey, we're going we're gonna to get her in at a, you know, at a quite young age to do this? Was this something that they enjoyed or was this a, a, a you know, did they, was there any sense of, oh, if I could have done this, I would have done this. Let's, pr let's give this opportunity to our kids. Both of my parents, though they were not artists professionally, they are, they are artists. They are creative people. Oh. Um, my mother, by trade, she's a veterinarian. Um, but she, I mean, I can't tell you an art form that she didn't, that she wasn't curious about and that she didn't try her hand at. And that was the example I had growing up. My mother, I was watching my mother teaching herself piano and she was also a seamstress and she was also... Uh, making little 3D figures out of um, clay and she was knitting and she was, you know, she was painting. She, she was a, a veterinarian, but she was a studio art major um, when she was in college. So I think it was just, and then my father is a writer and, you know, we'd have all these conversations about plays. He was the person that was really introducing me, me to some playwrights at a very young age, um, even though that's not what he did professionally. So I think we just had my brother and I, we really benefited from such a creative artistic household and an appreciation for the arts and a, and a deep love for artists. Um, and so 
that was the example. And then also a lot of the, the friends, you know, that were family friends or, you know, aunties and uncles that were always over, um, they were making uh, um, careers out of their art. So we also had that kind of very practical example of how you might do this. My godfather was, you know, he's a singer. Um, he's working on Broadway and, you know, somebody, um, another good family friend that actually shared the birth, a birthday with my mother, she um, was in jazz and she was running a jazz uh, radio station. So there's, you know, we just had so many examples. So there was, ne- from a very young age, um, my parents made a point of it. There was never a sense that this was something that I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And I've interviewed so many people in the arts who have had to have the conversation with their parents at some point, perhaps in high school, perhaps in college, or even after college about, no, this is what I'm going to do. Did you have that conversation with your family or is there an an understanding from early on for you? And if so, at what age, this is not just fun. This is what I'm going to do. If that conversation happened, it happened so early in my life that I don't recall. I think there was just an understanding that in, in you know with my immediate family and also my extended family that um you know it, and I guess before it became I, I think writing and acting for me because I'm also a performer and trained as a performer they were like simultaneous passions I can't say it's like the chicken and the egg I can't say which one came first they were both very much encouraged it was you know, everybody just understood that that's what Zora was doing because I was also doing it professionally at a young age and my whole family would show up. Um, and to be honest, though, if it, if it if I pivoted at a certain point and I shocked everybody and was like, listen, I'm getting into, you know, molecular biology, I would have been encouraged in that as well. And that's just the, the great privilege that I had uh, growing up in the family that I did. Um, and it's, it, it sounds it's like you would have had to have, ha- yeah, it is a blessing. It sounds like you would have had to have like the reverse conversation, uh, mom, yeah. dad. Oh, well, my mother. I mean, <laughs> my mother being a scientist, though, I think she would have, she would have certainly um, encouraged that. My my mother and a lot of aunts and uncles are in the medical field, but um, yeah, I tried. You know, when you're a little girl, you want you like you want to do the thing that your parents do. Um, so, and um, you know, my mother had her own practice in Harlem and I would go all the time. And I thought from the very first thing I said out loud when I was a, a child was that I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, but it, it took me watching, you know, my mother in surgery just the one time to know that that was <laughs> a career path for me. So. Yeah. The stage all of a sudden is looking pretty, pretty good. That's right. Pretty good. <laughs> That's right. Before we get to your early performances, and I've watched some of them, and they are really compelling. Uh, is there a show that you go to, or is there a seminal moment, something you watch on TV or on the stage or a film, that now it goes beyond just liking this notion of creating, but wow, you know, I could do that. I could move people in that way. You know, it's funny that you asked this question in, in this particular moment. Um, when I was, um, there was a theater company that was um, a resident theater company at this school that I, I grew up in, the Harlem School of the Arts. And very young, I got to see a performance of the Scottish play. This theater, it was, this, this is Harlem, this is Harlem 
25 years ago, um, this was an all black cast. So this is our mostly black cast um, doing Shakespeare smack dab in the middle of Harlem. Um, sorry for the siren. And um, that's OK. That's is, the that's the price of doing business in New York City. That's, that's right. I mean, they're here. And that was first my, my first introduction to Shakespeare. Um, and my first introduction to Shakespeare was with this cast um, and with this uh, interpretation. Um, and Rosalind Ruff, uh, who is a brilliant stage and film and television actor, uh, was playing the role of Lady M. And I was also in that production, um, was playing some, you know, nameless sword carrier or something like that. And I just remember every night, the you know, being able to watch her do her thing and play this iconic role. And she was so powerful and she had such a command of the language and she was captivating. And sure, it's about the king and, and his demise and all of that, but my eyes were on Lady M. And I must have been nine years old uh, the first time I did that production and and that was my so that was my lady M moving forward for the rest of my life. So there was no no one could tell me, oh well, lady M, that's a little bit out of your league, or you can't you people people that look like you they don't play lady M, or you can't because I was like, well, no, that's not true because I saw it, I was there. You can't tell you can't take nobody can take that away from me. So I think that um, was so formative to to just believe and and believe it so firmly at a very young age that I could do it because she did it. Um, and what makes that story special in this moment is that um, next week I'm going to LA. They're doing a production of my play Stew at Pasadena Playhouse um, and Rosalind Ruff is starring in it. Yeah. so Pretty sweet. <laughs> it is indeed. Pretty sweet. The circle will remain unbroken. That's, that's yes, terrific. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, do you recall the first time that you got on stage in New York City uh, to do spoken word and a poem that you had written? Yeah, of course I do. Oh my gosh, I was um, um, I was competing in the New York City Urban Word Youth Slam um, finals. And they were having that um, perform or that event. I can't even remember the school that some public school downtown, but it's, you know, in their auditorium. So it was, you know, and it was packed. Um, and I had made it to finals and I was very young. I was, you had to be 13 to compete. And I had just turned 13. Um, and I had my poem and I got on stage and I, the, the poem was called Biracial Hair. And I was so nervous. I remember the night before my mother did my hair. I didn't like the way she did my hair, you know. But anyway, once I was up there, I just, I guess, did my thing. But it was really the reception, you know, because it's a it's a room full of your peers and maybe some family that are there, you know, supporting their kids or their relatives. Um, but it was such a supportive, like the crowd erupted. Um, and that was really, that was really thrilling. Um, and those, you know, the people that were populating that, that room and that I went on to perform with for many, many years, they, mm, lifelong friends. Biracial hair is a beautiful piece of work. Oh. It's a terrific <laughs> piece of work. No, it I is. 
now. Uh, and I'm, you know, as we do with our, I was 12 years old when I wrote that poem. So I look back at it now and I'm like, oh God, it's so, <laughs> as we do, you know, it's like, I can't believe it. <laughs> as someone who was introduced to it this year and has watched it more than a few times, the juxtaposition of laughter and tears in it mm -hmm. is what one of the things that makes it so compelling and one of the things that makes great art compelling all the time, be it a book or a, a film or a, a piece of theater. When you're laughing one minute and you are crying or tearing up the next. And for example, in, in biracial hair, with the line, I look just like Alicia Keys, which elicits laughter from the audience, rightfully so, to 20 seconds later, you're referring to Emmett Till. And I'm curious, in, in your spoken word uh, material and your writing, that notion of juxtaposing something that you think will get a laugh, and not just a laugh for laugh's sake, but a meaningful laugh, next to something tragic, is that, some, is that a conscious thing? Or are we, or is analyzing it, you know, like they, they say the death of comedy is trying to analyze why a joke is funny. Is, mm -hmm. is there too much analysis when you're trying to do that? You just write what comes out and there's no order for, okay, something funny here, something uh, poignant here. Oh yeah, I wouldn't, I can't say that there's any kind of order. Um, that sounds, like a very painful process. <laughs> I do, though, I do think a reverence for humor, uh, which is um, ultimately, I think, a reverence for rhythm, um, is something that I'm that is that is intentional in my work, and I think that's because that's what I'm drawn to as a as a witness, as somebody or as somebody who consumes art. That's what always um, draws me in. Um, mm -hmm. and so, yes, I'm, I'm after that in my own work. And I think, um, it's also just the, it's, it's so much, um, so much of what I write and how I write is, is me just imitating what I observed or what I see or what I, you know, what I grew up around. And I think, you know, the people in my family, m master comedians, not, mm -hmm. not you know, not doing so um, sometimes intentionally, but oftentimes just, you know, that it's just kind of, it's hard to explain. It's kind of in them, like the understanding of the timing and the rebuttal and the call and response of it all. And, um, you know, always the one-upping, the always somebody topping the next person or letting something die down. And, you know, you think it's over. And then later on in the night, it comes back up. This kind of thing, I just grew up. I just grew up witnessing. So it's so, it feels like home. It's so in me that I, you know, and I think that's the thing. You see all these writers, these great writers that we look up to and we, um, and we respect is they, they talk so much about how just, we're just writing what we know. You just, you know, in one way or another, even when you're writing, when, you, when you're going into foreign territory and trying to write something that you don't know, it still ends up coming out like something, <laughs> something that you know. So I think, um, can you give an example of that? I mean, okay, I'll, here's may I hope this answers your this is a, answering your question. My my play Stew, which was my first mm -hmm. play, um, when it premiered in New York, my mother was there, my whole family was there. They they really do come out uh, uh, by the dozens, um, and 
after the play, she was like, I want royalties. You know, because there was so much of her in the play. I mean, it's about four women cooking a meal in a, in, in a kitchen, you know, and it's just surrounds, it's just about the meal, about them cooking the meal. Uh, hopefully some other stuff, it's about that as well. But, you know, that's that's the central action of the play. And just in terms of how those women moved and their retorts and, you know, their little, you know, quips back and so much of that was just my mother and my aunties and my godmother and my cousins and being in that kitchen or being around that kitchen and listening, you know, um, that's the most literal example. Cause it was, you know, it's dedicated to the women that raised me and I was trying to capture what I, what I experienced growing up in that kitchen in that play, but whether it's a, so literal a translation or not, it still shows up. I mean, even in hang time, the, the women of my family, there's three men in that play. And the women in my family are still in that play. I know that, you know, maybe the random, you know, attendee won't pick up on that because they don't know the women in my family, but I can hear them in there. Their sense of humor, you know, their vulgarity, their, all of that is. Now for Stu, <clears throat> I'm curious, and we'll get back, uh, we'll go a little bit out of chronological order here, but for Stu, I'm curious, how does one find out that they are a Pulitzer finalist <laughs> oh that was a funny day um you know not in the way that you might expect um i my i was at work i was in a writer's room at the time and it was a virtual writer's room so i was in my office locked in and um my phone started blowing up and um lots of congratulations and oh my god zora lots of exclamation points and I was like, hey, guys, I'm at work. I don't know what's going on. Nobody said the thing, though. Everybody was just like, oh, my God, Sora. And I was like, guys, I'm at work. Like, I can't do this right now. And it was so funny. All of it happened. I got all of the news. And somebody finally did tell me. You know, I think I was like, I have to use the restroom. I went to the restroom, got the call, and came straight back to the work call. Didn't say anything. And then, you know, in the middle of a pitch, one of my colleagues on the Zoom was like, hey, Zora, is there anything that you'd like to share with the group? Because he's also <laughs> a, <laughs> a playwright, so was getting the same notifications or emails or social media blasts. Um, so he blew my spot. But it was, a, it was a wonderful, it was very unexpected. And it also, uh, just the universe, uh, it happened on my mother's birthday. <laughs> so, like I said, royalties, right? She's very uh, noisy, <laughs> um, but it was a, a good day. You go off to Yale, and I, I've read a, a quote from you, which uh, is compelling, uh, assuming the quote is correct, which is always a, a big leap. Um, mm -hmm. And I say that as a member of the media. Uh, you wrote... <laughs> My main fear is about what four years away from Harlem will mean for me personally. What was the feeling like as you were heading off to Yale, uh, both from an academic standpoint and just, just you know, from uh, going off to Yale University? What was your feeling like uh, before those four years? I'm very curious about where you got that quote. <laughs> it sounds like me well, at that time. <laughs> okay. I don't doubt that it's a... Um... I don't doubt that I said that. Um, how did I, what was it like going away? I mean, I was very, I had a, 
as we all do when we are embarking on a, a new experience, a new journey, you have what you think it's going to be, and then you are very soon met with what it actually is. Um, I think my expectations were very high. Um, and as it goes, um, I was a little let down by my experience at Yale. Um, but I am the one, the, the few things that I do carry from those four years is that I did get a world class uh, education. I loved what I was studying, I loved um, the access that I had to information, to knowledge, to these. Um, masters of their field. Um, I was a comparative literature major. Obviously, literature is a very big part of my life. So in that regard, I was a kid in the candy store. Um, and I also left that school with my closest friends um, that I would not have made it through without. Um, I'm actually going to celebrate one of those girlfriends this weekend. Um, and and that's all. I mean, I'm I'm glad to have taken those two things away. There were other parts that were difficult, but I'm grateful. Was the path ahead for you uh, during the years at Yale? Was it absolutely clear to you, or were there ever moments of oh maybe I'll might, might consider doing this or Maybe with the vagaries of a life in the arts, perhaps I should have a plan B in place. You know, funnily enough, I I was a complement major because that's what I wanted to do. I loved um, literature, of course, and then I also loved learning other languages. I, I first went to Yale thinking I was going to be a linguistics major, took a couple of those classes, realized that that was the science, uh, and I quickly pivoted. Um, <laughs> but I it's kind of the like, Yale, the Yale version of uh, being in surgery with your mom for the right. one time. And yes, you think it's one thing, you see it, what it actually is, and you make a different decision. Um, noticing a tr noticing a trend here. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, but I actually did not. Uh, it wasn't until pretty late in my my academic career that I made a decision about what was going to be next. I, um, I actually remember I was studying abroad. I was in Brazil and this was the, my junior year, um, that towards the end of my junior year. And I was like, oh dear, next year is senior year. That is the last year. And I had not had, I didn't make any plans to apply for graduates. I had no idea what I was going to do because I wasn't sure that I wanted to, I knew the arts were going to be involved in my, you know, I was going to be involved in the arts in some way, but I wasn't committed to following any kind of traditional path to, to get to a professional life in the arts. Um, so me deciding to go to graduate school for acting was kind of, it was, it was a bit of a might as well decision. It wasn't mm -hmm. like, a, I always knew that this was, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't acting at Yale. I was running a theater company with a friend. We were, I was directing, I was, um, running workshops, but I wasn't really performing. I'd stopped doing that in high school. And so it was really just kind of like rolling a dice. I'm going to audition for some programs, see what happens. have no idea what I would have done if I didn't get accepted <laughs> to one of those schools. Um, and I did, I did go and, and pursue my MFA in acting. Um, and things became clearer 
there. Things became clearer in graduate school. I was there as an actor, but I was doing everything else. I was trying to find all of the opportunities to direct. I was trying to, you know, poach a, an education in playwriting, even though I wasn't a playwriting student. I think graduate school is where it, it kind of crystallized for me some. Yeah. Uh, before that, or even during those that early period, and, and you're still in the in the early chapters, plural of uh, uh, what is turning out to be a, a really great career. Do you ever, and especially in the world of the arts, uh, do you ever have to deal with the element of doubt of not so much your own belief in your own talent, but you know, is, is this going to work? Is this going to happen for me? Oh, absolutely. I don't. If, that, if there is a single artist that says that I'm, I want to know what, what their regiment is, what are they, what are they <laughs> sitting on? Um, absolutely. Every single day, at every single juncture, um, you know, it's the doubt that you will be um, recognized by, you know, and I think it changes in a lifetime who we kind of give that power over to in terms of validating our work. The prayer is mm -hmm. that it's you and, and maybe your God, you know, and that's kind of where it stays. But of course, there's a lot of external pressures. There's what the critics say about your work. There's what your peers say about your work. There's what audiences say about your work. There's what, you know, the institutions have to say, the feedback you get from uh, artistic directors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it is very difficult to keep keep the noise down keep it quiet you know stay in control of that noise when i graduated from ucsd my father uh sent me a little note and i i still have the note where he said you know you're graduating and there's going to be a lot of voices that um are are, are saying things to you in these upcoming days and weeks and months and years try to make sure yours is the loudest voice uh, and that's the the bit of advice that I try to pass along to um, folks that I meet who are seeking advice is that we, we can't, you can't avoid the voices. You can't avoid people trying to tell you what it should be or what it shouldn't be or how you should have done things differently. Or, um, But you can try to make them small. You should listen to some of the voices because, you know, we, you want your work to expand. And sometimes there's there's good feedback out there that 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 elevates what you're trying to do or extends what you're trying to do. Um, but your your voice, my voice has to be the the loudest. That was a long winded way to answer. Yes, there is. There's always. <laughs> that was a thoughtful, it's a thoughtful answer. At this point, you've done spoken word on stage. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You've, which is, again, uh, watching some of them, especially uh, Sister Girlfriend, really compelling mm. stuff. <laughs> uh, you've obviously done stage work, uh, written plays, and also films with the film Premature. Uh, at this point, when you have an idea, or maybe several ideas for, for what a piece would be, do you know from the get-go, oh, this would work best as a fill in the blank, since you're working in all these different areas or have worked in all these different areas? Yes. When, when an idea or a concept or, you know, a character, those, at least at, up until this point, those things kind of come hand in hand, you know, I'm like, this is a play. 
you know, there's something fundamental about this idea or this story or, and it has to be a play at least first, you know, that who knows what will happen, but it has to, you know, meet the world as a play or it has to meet the world as a film or this might be a short story or I don't know what this is. It's not any of these things that I've already dabbled in, but dabbled in rather, but I, it, it, it needs to be out in the world. But for the most part, um, the medium itself, you know, the, 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 it tells me what it needs to be. Most of the people I've interviewed throughout my career and for this podcast and this notion of the journey getting to success and professional fulfillment, whatever that, however that uh, translates in the field that they're in, not just in the arts, uh, that before the cheering started period is a while ago for them, obviously based on their age and how many years they've been doing what they've been doing. But for you, it's, it's relatively recent. And so I'm curious what it feels like. It may not feel like recent to you because you've been doing this for a long time and you re referred to the you know, spoken word as a, as a kid and winning the award in New York City. Uh, but I'm curious for you what this period feels like to you. You've got a, a, a film that was at Sundance under your belt. You've got uh, you know, plays that you've written happening in New York. And as you said, you're going out to California. So what does this period feel like to you? And are there surprises about it or is it kind of what you anticipated? Oh, well, that's a that's a big question because it takes some like associative work. I don't know if in my head I see myself where perhaps others might see me, see me because the the accolades and, you know, the the exposure, they're all wonderful. They're great, but um they don't motivate me. So I, it's, it's, um, it's weird. You know, when I, when the, the stuff happened with the, um, the Pulitzer finalist notification, I have a friend, another playwright who was a finalist the year was that happened for him the year before. And I, I called him up and I was like, yeah, so what does this mean? And he, <laughs> he's a funny guy, but he's basically like, you know, I don't really know. Uh, mm. It might mean that people, some people speak to you differently or, or regard you differently. But outside of that, you know, it, it's for you to signify. It's for you to decide if, if it's, you can make it whatever you'd like to make it. Um, and to be honest with you, while they're, they're wonderful and they're, they're, um, you know, you always appreciate being recognized by a panel or a jury or colleagues, peers, that feels good. The things that I want to make and the ideas that are rattling around in my head are the same, you know, and that's the thing that drives me. It's like, but I still have this opera, you know, and that's just, that's just between me and me. Like I, I just have to write it. I just have to get it out. And none of these things are going to help me do that. You know, they might maybe somewhere down the road, um, you know, might introduce me to somebody who might be a part of that team that we talked about of collaborators that can help me um, uh, realize the thing. Cause all of my work is meant to be shared. I don't write um, just for myself. I do want to share it with people. The way that I can kind of um, mark where I am in my career and in, in my practice is I've got 
this this many unwritten plays and this many unwritten films and this is an idea over here that I think is supposed to be animated and this over here like I said that's supposed to be an opera and I got to get to it and my prayer is that I can just get to it in in time with the time that I have left here the great writer Jacqueline Woodson has told me in interviews that when she writes at home in Brooklyn the award she's won, she's got them behind her. She's not looking at them as she writes because those awards aren't going to write the next book. That's exactly And so right. along, along those lines, but does the knowledge that you've done it and you've done the plays, does anything in that help you with the next project? Kind of as you look at the blank computer knowing, well, I've, I've, I've done it. So there is some level of confidence that even if, that particular day is a struggle in terms of trying to write what you want to write. You've done it before. It, it will come again. Whew. Well, that's the prayer. There's also the little bit of doubt every time that, oh, God, is it, am I going to get it again? But absolutely. I think absolutely like having premiered Hang Time this year, um, which, you know, is a piece that I've been working on since 2020 to see that come to life i mean that it's it, that is really um miraculous and 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 having been there and it you know to know that it was real it's miraculous but it actually did happen that is a little bit of uh fire you know when i'm looking like you said at that blank page um like it can happen you know it takes a lot of work but i know it can happen cuz i saw it and i lived it and um yeah, so absolutely. Not the awards or the recognition or any of that. It's because I didn't do that. I did the play. You know, I wrote the play. Um, and not alone, you know, I, but I did have a hand in, in bringing a thing to life and uh, the constant prayers that I'll just be able to bring more and more to life. I would say have a hand in it is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> Is there a way you could look at those early years that you talked about, the growing up in, in, a, in a home kind of filled with a love of the arts and then going to school for the arts and being involved with it almost from the get-go, uh, and the influences from your family and friends and extended family, is there any way you can point to that and, and see how it has a tangible effect, aside from what appears on the stage, as you referred to in, um, in Stu? Is there any way that tangibly affects the work that you continue to do today? Absolutely. I knew I was an artist before I maybe knew anything else about myself. And it was immediately affirmed. I think there are many people who know they are creative beings. I mean, we're all creative beings, but know that that is what they're supposed to be contributing. That's what they're supposed to be doing in the world. They know it deep in their bones, but they've got people all around them telling them, no, you know, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. So that they have that, that tension where, you know, they know they're supposed to be doing it and somebody's telling them that they can't do it. Um, and I, I did not have that obstacle. Um, and that freed up so much space in my life to just do the thing that I'm, I know I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, absolutely. And that started so, so young. And I credit 
the entire village that has loved me for making that possible. Playwright, actor, screenwriter, Zora Howard. Her play, Stu, is being staged at the Pasadena Playhouse in California in July and August. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well, no extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.